Well, I want to welcome everybody here today, those join us online on the stream and also those join us on TV. We're glad that you're a part of the Sagebrush family. Uh, as they bring out my table and my chair, I want to start off by telling you a little bit of a story. Now, if you've been around Sagebrush for any amount of time, you know I'm not very handy with tools. You know that, right? I'm the one who's glued his hands together. Well, friends, listen, I have hit an all-new low. It was a few years ago, I was uh, at my house with my middle daughter, Hannah. My oldest daughter had already moved out. My youngest daughter was in Colorado with my wife. They were at a gymnastics meet. They were going to fly in the next day, and then we were going to get on another plane, and we are going to head off on a little bit of a family vacation. Well, we had two dogs at the time. And we had some friends of ours in the church that said they would come over and they would house it and they would watch our dogs. I appreciate that. So my wife had a laundry list of different things that I was supposed to get done, things that Hannah and I were supposed to clean. So we're working our way down the list, and the next thing up is clean the toilet. Now, that's not a big thing to do, right? That's not hard. How many of you, just play along at home and here in the room, how many of you ever cleaned a toilet? Just put your hands up. If your hand's not up, you're lazy. That's all I got to say, okay? I've cleaned many a toilet in my day. That's not a big deal. I know how to clean a toilet. So I turned to Hannah, and I said, Hannah, why don't you clean the toilet in the hallway, and I'll clean the toilet over by mom and I's bedroom. And uh, I said, what's your mom use now to clean the toilet? Because I was looking for the clean supplies. I couldn't find anything. She said, well, she uses one of these. Well, I had never seen one of these ever before. I said, this is what she uses. She says, yes, this is what she uses. I said, how do you do it? She said, you stick that thing on there and you clean the toilet. I said, okay, that's not hard at all. And let me tell you something about this. This is awesome. This machine right here, it's incredible. It's packed with Clorox goodness right there at the very end. And I, it was a matter of seconds, I had that toilet spick and span, lickety split, man. It was looking good. Well, I get done cleaning the toilet, and I'm thinking, what should I do with the end? And most of you would say, well, you would throw that away. But I thought it was dissolvable. Why I thought it was dissolvable, I do not know. Because it's a plastic applicator with a sponge. It pops right off. So I popped it off. I didn't touch it like I'm doing right now. And I put it into the toilet and I flushed the toilet. Now you already know where this is going, don't you? Well, the toilet clogged up on me. I said, you've got to be kidding me right now. I can't believe that. But I know how to unclog a toilet. So I went and I got the plunger and I started plunging that thing and plunging that thing. And eventually I got it to go through. It was gone. So I flushed the toilet and everything was working fine. But the problem was there was a little gurgle sound every time the water would come back. Like it's passed but it's still there. You know what I'm talking about? And so I kept hearing this gurgle sound. I said to myself, I said, self, I said, yeah, this isn't good. This isn't good. I'm getting ready to leave town tomorrow and I've got this couple coming in. And then all of a sudden I had an epiphany. And the epiphany was this, I got this couple coming in, they're going to use the bathroom at some point, they're going to think they did it and I'm in the clear. That's what I thought. <laughs> that tells you what a sinner I am, you understand? Problem with my plan was Hannah knew what I had done. So the only way I'm getting away with this is to kill Hannah. That's the only way. But I like Hannah, I don't want to kill her. Well, she comes in because you know, she hears me plunging away a good 15, 20 minutes. And, and she looks at me, as I got sweat coming down. I just can't get that gurgle going. And, and she said, why don't you call mom? <laughs> Let me talk to the men for just a second. 
Is there a sentence that's crueler to you than that one? Why don't you call mom? I said, why don't you go away? You know, I don't need you around here right now. Just go back and clean your toilet a second time. She said, I can't believe you did it. She said, then she said this. She said, mom will know what to do. And I thought to myself, that's probably true. Mom probably will know what to do. But I, I don't want to call mom. I don't, I don't want to call her and tell her what I, what I have done. So I, I keep plunging. And I plunged for another hour. And that thing just kept gurgling, kept gurgling, kept gurgling. So I broke down and I called my wife. Oh, she laughed and laughed. She thought it was so funny. And then she said this, and I quote, If I was there, I probably could have already had it fixed. Thank you for that. She said, you need to go to Lowe's and get a snake. I said, there's no reason to get another family pet, honey. I don't know what you're talking about. She said, no, you need to get a snake. I said, what in the world's a snake? She said, it's a tool that plumbers use to unclog stuff. So I said, fine, I'll go to Lowe's. So I go to Lowe's, I ask some nice people there, and they show me a whole row, a section of snakes. And there's small snakes and big snakes and commercial snakes and everything in between. And I said to myself, I said, self, I said, yeah, if I get one of those, I'm going to do more damage than when I began. I'm going to probably break the toilet. That's what I'm going to do. Well, I don't want to call my wife again. So I'm thinking to myself, who can I call? And then it occurred to me, I have a friend. He's been my friend for over 30 years. His name is Joseph Santangelo. He owns Sunshine Plumbing. If there's anybody can get me out of this mess, my friend Joseph can get me out of this mess. So I called Joseph on the phone, and I said, I did it again. I messed up again, and I need your help. He said, hey, don't worry about it all. I'll send somebody right over. Friends, it's Sunday night, 9 o'clock at night. He sends somebody over. They were in my house in five minutes. And in five minutes flat, they had cleaned my toilet out. I mean, I was good to go. And so I sent Joseph a text message. This is what the text message said. I said, thank you, Joseph. He's done. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And look at what Joseph wrote back. He said, no problem. You do what you're good at, and we'll do what we're good at. (laughs) and then he said call me anytime that's a mistake joseph because i will what a great friend to come over and help me in that way friends listen to me i I did not want to call my wife for help honestly i did not want to call joseph for help I've, i've always been under the school of thought you know you get yourself in a mess you get yourself out of the mess that's just the way it is right you can't count anybody else except for yourself that's That's just the way that it is. I have a hard time asking for help. And I don't think I'm the only person here who has a hard time asking for help. Can I ask you a couple of questions? How bad does your marriage have to get before you finally ask for help? How deep in debt do you have to get before you finally ask for some help? How many people do you have to wound? How many people do you have to hurt with your addiction before you finally admit that you've got a problem and you get the help that you desperately need? My goodness, for some of us, how long is it going to take before you realize that you're a sinner in desperate need of a Savior and that there's no amount of goodness that's going to make you right with God? When will you finally come to your senses and cry out for help? And cry out to the King of kings and the Lord of lords who loved you so much that he came and he dwelt among us, lived a perfect sinless life, dies on a cross, rises again from the dead. When will you finally call out 
for help. It's the, it's the alcoholic who says he, oh, he can stop anytime he wants to. It's, it's the guy who's addicted to porn who keeps convincing himself that he's not going to go back to that website or go back to that area in his smartphone that's concealed from everybody else. It's that person whose mouth is out of control. They're lying. They're gossiping. They're using profanity. They say vulgar things. They have no control over their mouth. And they see the wake of bodies and the people that they're affecting. And yet they won't ask for help. Why is that? It's because we're arrogant. It's because we're stubborn. It's because we're full of pride. And we don't like to play the part of a fool. Well, we've been doing this little series called Dead End Desperation, and we've been looking at different people that Elisha has had an encounter with who finds themselves in a desperate situation. And today we're going to look at a man by the name of Naaman. Let's take a look at it. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 5. Now, Naaman was the commander of the army of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given him victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. All right, so we got a guy with power and position. Got a guy who struts his stuff everywhere he goes. He thinks he's all that in a box of chicken when he's nothing more than a little wing. He just thinks he's awesome, you know what I mean? And he's a, he's a soldier. He tells people what to do. He commands them what to do, and they do exactly. He thinks he has power, and he's had success, hasn't he? And the Bible says the reason that he had success was because the Lord gave him success. Here's what's interesting. No place in this passage of Scripture that Naaman gives credit to God for what he's done. You ever met anybody like this that's arrogant, that's full of pride, that wants all the attention and the spotlight upon themselves? They want all the credit. They say, say, look at what I accomplished. Look at what I did. That was my idea. Look at me. Look at me. Now, here's my question. What do you and I have to brag about? Can you hold a sea back or put a star in the sky? Can you pull that off? Can you make planets revolve around the sun? Come on, can you make food digest in your stomach? Can you keep your heart beating? What do you have to boast about? What great accomplishment have you done? Can you heal someone who's sick? Can you, can you raise someone who has died? Have you conquered death, sin, and the grave? Friends, if we're going to boast about something, let's, let's not boast about our little accomplishments that are here today and gone tomorrow. You do realize 100 years from now, nobody's going to know you ever lived. And I like to remind you of that from time to time because sometimes people walk around strutting their stuff like they're all that and take, check me out and look at me. Come on, man. hundred years from now, nobody's going to know that you even existed. The only thing that matters, the only thing that we should ever boast about is that God knows us. That God knows us by name. That God knows the number of hairs on our head. His thoughts of us outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. That he's collected every tear that we've ever cried. That he's acquainted with our ways. He knows when we get up, when we lie down. He knows everything about us. That's what brings us significance. That's what brings us hope. It's not about our accomplishments. It's about his accomplishments through us. Why is it that you have life? Did you give yourself life? No, God gave you life. And those gifts and talents and abilities, who gave those things to you? 
Oh, you developed them, but who gave them to you? And for what purpose did he give those things to you? So that he would get the praise and the honor and the glory forever and ever and ever. Friends, whatever you do, Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If we're going to boast, let's boast in the fact that we are child of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let's boast about the things that he's accomplished through us. Let's give him all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. But not Naaman. No, no, not Naaman. He's strutting his stuff. He's telling people what to do. Well, he gets kind of a shocker, doesn't he? Because he gets leprosy. So here we got a guy who's very successful, very prideful, very arrogant, and he gets leprosy. And leprosy in this time period was a death sentence. There's no cure for this. So he knows at this point that he is a dead man walking. Now, remember a few months ago when we talked about leprosy? It starts with small patches and nodules on the skin. And then those patches, those nodules, they begin to grow forth and they begin to ulcerate. And then the pus starts to come out of them, spreading the leprosy. And I'm told that the stench is unbelievable. It covers all, it can cover your entire body. How's a person die of leprosy? Eventually it gets in their mouth. Goes down to their throat. It ulcerates their vocal cords. Can you imagine how disgusting that must be? That's why people with leprosy are hoarse because their vocal cords have been ulcerated. Eventually it goes up the brain stem into the brain, causing a person to go into a coma, and then eventually they die. This is what this man has got. He has absolutely no hope. And guess what? He's beginning to realize that all of his accomplishments and all of his successes can't take on this. That everything he was banking on that made him significant, that made him bigger than life, can't take on death. Look at what happens. The story continues. Verse 2. Now bands from... Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So we got, I guess we got some band of thugs at some point in time from Israel uh, that, uh, that have gone into Israel, and they've kidnapped this poor girl. And they have drugged her back to this foreign country, and they have sold this girl into slavery. Now, for just a second, put yourself in this girl's shoes. Think of the abuse that she's probably gone through. And now she's been sold to this person. And even though this person is very kind to you, let's say, and and they're very nice to you and, and they help you as much as they can, you're still their slave. You've still been dragged away from your mom and your dad, from your country, from your people. Would you be bitter? Would you be angry? Would you want to help your master out when he gets leprosy? I mean, I wonder, you don't have to raise your hand, but I wonder how many of us would be like, it's about time God got him, right? Sucker, sell me, buy me into slavery. It's about time you got what's coming to you. But this woman wasn't like that. She has an amazing faith in God because she holds on to God and holds on to his plan even though it doesn't make any sense to her. In an amazing act of kindness, she goes to to Naaman's wife and says, you know, there's a prophet in Israel that can heal leprosy. If only my master knew about him, he might be able to get the help that he needs. So Naaman's wife goes to Naaman and says, what do you got to lose? And Naaman says, you know, you're right. 
I'm going to head to uh, Israel. I'm going to find this prophet. But he wants to use his power. He wants to use his influence. And so what's he do? He packs up like 10, 12 things of clothing. He gets a bunch of gold. He gets a bunch of silver together. He thinks, are you ready for this? He thinks he can buy himself out of this situation. You, you ever met somebody who's so arrogant and full of themselves because they got a big house and they got a lot of cars and all that kind of stuff. And they walk around like they're all that. You know what I'm talking about? And they count on money to get them out of any situation. And, and it's nice to have money, isn't it? I mean, if you have too much, I'll take some. You understand what I'm saying? It's nice to have money. It's, just, it's good. But when you rely upon money to do things that money was never intended to do, when you worship money, thinking money is the be-all, end-all, well, that's when you're going to be very, very empty. That's when you can have a huge house and, and it just be so very empty. I remember years ago reading this. It said, money can buy a house, but it can't buy a home. That's true, isn't it? Money can buy you a bed, but it can't buy you sleep. Money can buy you a clock, but it can't buy you time. Money can buy you sex, but it can't buy you love. Money can buy position, but not respect. It can buy medicine, but not health. Money can buy insurance, but not safety. Money can't buy a peace that passes all understanding. And money can't take away the emptiness that you feel inside every moment of every day of your life. Your life can be full of stuff and still so very, very empty. So Naaman goes in there strutting his stuff with all of his money. He thinks money's going to help him out. And he also thinks his connections are going to do it too. See, he's a big shot. He knows the king. So he goes to the king and he says, I've got leprosy and there's a prophet in Israel and I need you to write a letter. A letter that I can give to the king of Israel. And that way it will force the king of Israel to get, find that prophet and to help me any way he possibly can. He thinks his connections to power is somehow going to help him along the way. Well, he, he takes off on his journey, doesn't he? He gets to Israel. And he has a meeting with the king of Israel. And he hands him the letter from the king of Aram. The king of Israel opens it up to find out what in the world does it say. And then this is the king's response. He tears his robe and he says, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? King looks at Naaman and says, are you kidding me right now? I'm getting a letter from your king to heal you of leprosy? Am I a God? Do I have that kind of power to heal leprosy? Is this guy setting me up to try to start some kind of a fight with me? Now, you're naming. This is your hope, right? And you're thinking your power, your position, your accomplishments, your money is going to get you through. But now you're beginning to realize, oh, my goodness, everything that I had counted on, everything I'd lived my life for, it's not enough, is it? It can't stop death from coming to me. Well, look at what happens. Verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his robe, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know there's a prophet in Israel. All right, so now he's going to see the prophet that he wants to see. Now, you would think at this point in time, Naaman would be humble, don't you think? 
You think he would come and say, oh, if you'd have pity on me, have mercy upon me. I, I really could use this. I mean, if your God could do something to help me. No, that's not what he does. He takes all of his chariots, all of his horses. In a tremendous show of force with all of his soldiers, he surrounds Elisha's house. And then he sends one of the guys to knock on the door. I bet Elisha looked out and thought, you've got to be kidding me right now. And Elisha says, I'm not impressed. I always get a kick out of people who get so impressed with movie stars or people who in rock music and pop music, things like that, like they're, like they're better than you or something. They poop just like you poop. You understand that, right? That's what I always tell my kids. I say, why are you making a big deal? They poop like anybody else poops. I know that's crass. I shouldn't have said that. That wasn't in the notes, so I'm sorry for that, okay? <laughs> he didn't come humbly before Elisha. Oh, he struts his stuff, sticks out his chest, and it's like, you owe me this. I think he's trying to intimidate him. And Elisha won't play the game. He doesn't even come to the door. He sends a servant to come to the door. And look at what the servant says. He says, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you'll be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Naaman, Naaman's mad. He's like, I can't even believe I'm being disrespected right now. Does he not know who I am? I am a person of authority. I'm a person of power. He won't even come out of the house and talk to me. I thought for the very least he would come out and do some kind of mumbo jumbo thing, call upon his God, wave his hand over the spot, cure me of leprosy. I cannot believe this. Tell me to bathe. I bathe. If bathing somehow healed someone of leprosy, I'd have been healed a long time ago. I bathe every day. And the rivers back home are a lot cleaner than that nasty river over there. He's mad. And he says, I'm not going to do it. Ready for his next problem? He thinks he's too smart. What he's being asked to do doesn't make any sense. And so he says, you know what? Forget it. I'm not going to do it. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Let me tell you about God. You ready for this? Uh, he's God. I'm not. He's smart. I'm not. He's the king. I'm not. He's infinite, I'm not. He's eternal, I'm not. He's pure, I'm not. He's perfect, I'm not. He's almighty, I'm not. He's all-knowing, I'm not. There's nothing he can't do. And if he asks me to do something, my job is to follow him and do exactly what he wants me to do and stop arguing with him. And I think for a lot of us, you've been arguing with God your whole entire life. You pick and you choose what you're going to follow and obey, and then you ignore the things that you should be doing, and you're arguing with God, and you're blowing him off because you think you're smarter than God. No, friends, he leads, we follow. He commands, we obey. Let me ask you a question. How many more needless scars and bruises do you have to have because you thought you were smart? At what point... Do we finally come to our senses and say, I am a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. And he is wiser and stronger and smarter than anything I've ever dreamed or imagined. So I'm just going to trust him and I'm going to stop arguing with him. Look at what happens next. The servant looked at Naaman and he said, my father or my Lord, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you have not done it? How much more than when he tells you to wash and be cleansed? He says, what do you have to lose? 
You've come all this way. What do you have to lose to take God at his word? Can I ask you the same question? For those of you who still haven't asked Jesus Christ to come into your life, you're still holding on. What do you have to lose? Well, I know what you have to lose. You can lose the guilt that's been weighing you down every moment of your life. You can lose the regret. You can lose the overwhelming emptiness that even though you're highly successful and got a lot of money in the bank, you still know that you're missing what life is really about. You can lose that too. And what do you gain? Oh, you gain a friend that's closer than a brother. You gain forgiveness for every stupid thing you've ever done. You, you, you gain eternal life. You gain a relationship with the living God who you were created by to do, to do life together with. You, you gain peace. You gain contentment. You gain purpose for your life. That emptiness goes away. You find significance because of your relationship with Jesus. But come on, friends. To gain all this, you got to humble yourself. you got to stop sitting on the throne of your life acting like you're all that, like you don't need anybody. You got yourself in this mess. You'll get yourself out of it you got to get rid of this thing we call the Messiah complex. I was reading this book by Milton Rokich. It's a fascinating book called The Messiah Complex. And he, he's a psychologist, and he had these guys, three of them, who all believed that they were the Messiah, the Son of God. And he would meet with them individually, and he'd have conversations with them, trying to help them with their delusion to realize and recognize that that's not who they are. But nothing was working. None of his treatments were working. It just continued down this dark cycle of believing that they were something that they weren't. So he thought he'd try a new kind of therapy. So here was his new idea. He would bring all three guys together. And they would all sit in the room together. He said it led to some very interesting conversations. He said one guy would say, I am the son of God. I'm here on a mission from God. And Milton would say, well, who told you that? He'd say, God told me that. Then another guy would say, I told you no such thing. <laughs> That's how the conversations would go round and round and round and round and round. You want the truth about the human condition? Just about everybody, if not everybody, has a Messiah complex. And they think they're something that they're not, and they think they're bigger and they're better and they're smarter and that their accomplishments and their successes and their achievements and their... Gosh, their connections will somehow help them along the way. But they have all that stuff. And they're still empty. They're still missing the whole reason we were placed on this earth in the first place. Which is to have a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus. At some point in time, you got to say, I'm not, the, I'm not the Messiah. I don't have it all figured out. And the things that I thought were once so precious and so great, well, they pale in comparison to knowing him, to loving him, to serving him. I read a story about a, a little Sunday school class, and they were recreating the creation story. And uh, Mrs. Berg, the teacher, she picked Jonathan to play the part of God. And she had a little step ladder that went up two, three steps, and she put him up on the third step, handed him a flashlight. She said, now in a few minutes, after all the other children get their assignments, I want you to turn the flashlight on. I want you to say, let there be light. You're going to be God. Okay, Jonathan? Jonathan said, okay. 
So she started working with the other kids, and they were you know, different animals that needed to slither and do the different things that they would do. And as she was getting all the kids set up for the big you know, finale of when it would let there be light and the creation and the animals swarming and all that, she felt a tug on her skirt. And it was Jonathan. She said, yes, Jonathan, what, what do you need? He said, Mrs. Berg, w- would it be okay if someone else did it? He said, I feel a little too crazy to be God. <laughs> Isn't that you? Aren't you tired of fighting? Aren't you ready to surrender everything to him? And, and this is for those of you who haven't asked Christ in your life, and it's for those of you who have. Because it's a daily struggle, isn't it, of letting go and trusting God in a way that you never thought you could trust him before. Are you ready to do that? Are you ready to finally say, you know what, I'm not the ruler of the universe, you are. Naaman goes to the Jordan River. The Bible says in verse 13, he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Seven times down. And I believe every time he went down under that water, a little bit of his pride drifted away. And by the seventh time, he realized who was in charge and who calls the shots. See, I think every time he went down, it humbled him to the point where he could now be used by the King of Kings and by the Lord of Lords. So let me ask you a question. Who's, who's sitting on the throne of your life? Oh, I know you probably prayed some prayer at some point in time. Who's sitting on the throne of your life? Who's calling the shots? Who are you following? Who are you serving? At the end of the day, when death comes knocking on your door, who are you counting on to get you to the other side? Did you notice in the story that Naaman had to take the first step? He had to go into Jordan, didn't he? He had to dip under not one time, not two times. He had to do exactly what the prophet said. And the seventh time down, he saw the blessing. Show God your faith. And then he shows him your faithfulness. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I believe that there are people in this room and watching from home that do not have a relationship with you, that need you, and need your love, They need your grace, and they need your mercy. But for some reason, their pride and their arrogance has stopped them. They won't ask for help. But deep down inside, they know they need it. So, Lord, I just pray that this would be a moment of humility. This would be a moment when we get things right with you, that we finally let go of the things that we think we're in control of and lay them all down at your feet. Lord, for anyone who doesn't have a relationship with you, I pray that you would give them the strength to come down to the front, talk to a pastor, and get their lives right with you. It's going to take humility, Lord, for them to do it. They're going to have to push past their fear. They're going to have to push past the fear of what other people think or what other people will say. But Lord, just like Naaman dipped himself seven times in that water, it's time for us to take several steps down to the front and finally give our lives over to you. Something we've been holding on to for a long, long time, but now it's time to finally let it go. 
God, we pray your will will be done in this time. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.